Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out. But they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Thus far the reading of God's Word. What is true greatness? You know, we do concern ourselves with with greatness, don't we? We like to think of what things are the best and the greatest. We like to speak about, if anyone will ask us, that America is the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And after all, also what we have here is, if anyone asks, we remind them that Texas is the greatest state in the country. After all, it's the only state that was its own country. We like to tell people what car they should buy because we have this one and it's, it's wonderful, it's the best. You should have this kind of smartphone or, or that kind of smartphone. We like to find out what the best things are and to proclaim them great. But how does that work in our own lives? What does it mean to have greatness? To Know that we have purpose and meaning. 
This morning, Luke records for us several vignettes that get at the core of what greatness is. And he does it initially by dispelling two very common incorrect ways that all of us, you and I, are tempted to judge greatness by. And then he begins to unfold the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to show us where we find true greatness. The two things that we often are tempted to look at are the things that we do or the way in which other people think of us. But the true measure of greatness is following the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here this morning in Luke 9. Well, our text begins here at verse 37 with the conclusion of Jesus and Peter, John, and James being up on the mountain of transfiguration. And so, right now, the disciples are feeling pretty good about themselves. They're, they're pretty confident. If, if you were there at this time and you walked up to them and you said, well, how, how are things going for you? How are you doing? How do you like following Jesus? You'd probably get a series of the same sorts of answers. Oh, well, things are great. Never been better. You know, we're Jesus' right-hand men. You know, just a little bit ago, He sent us out and, and we were casting out demons left and right. Healing people front, left, and center. We were preaching. It was powerful. The crowds love us. We watched Jesus feed 5,000 people. Let me tell you, we're where it's at. Jesus and our group, top of the line here. If you want to get on the, in on the front end of the greatest religious movement in the world, join us. They were a bit overly concerned with their success. They'd gotten success. It had come to them relatively easily. Because as you may recall, at the beginning of this chapter, in the first five verses, Jesus sent them out with power and authority to do all of these things that we've described. But the problem is, is that so often, as we do, they only remembered their own victories. They remembered what they had done and how they had been successful. And it retreated to the back of their minds that they went out with the power and authority of Jesus. This happens to you and me, doesn't it? We even have a saying about it. We say that people forget how they got to where they are. They forget all the hard work and the help and the assistance and the training that they received. You know, it's not as if just someday Michael Jordan or LeBron James woke up and was a fabulous basketball player. Right? It was the things that they ate and the training they received and the coaching they got and the practice that they were told. But you see, when you're on the pinnacle of success, you tend to forget that you're really not all that. And so, not only was this an opportunity on the heels of casting out demons, the three other disciples come down from the mountain This is literally the high point. They were 
on the mountaintop of faith, literally. And you can imagine as they come down, they're walking. They're thinking, this is great. Did you see that? I know, Elijah. Look, Moses. Can you believe it? Yeah. And did you see Jesus? Well, yeah. The clothing was blinding me. Oh, man, are we fortunate to have been there. We are really blessed. And, you know, Jesus, you know, he just took us. You know, I thought maybe he would take Andrew because he's related to me, but no, just the three of us. So you can imagine this high that they are riding right now. The problem is, is that we have similar sorts of mountaintop experiences. And we like to try and go back to them and think about them and almost live in the past. But there's a problem with that because life has a habit of keeping on going. It doesn't stop. It goes on. And so this is what happens to the disciples as they come down and they're out and about in with a great crowd, Luke tells us. It is, it is a very dangerous thing to think about one's circumstances and success and to place one's value in that. Because on the very next day, Luke tells us in verse 37, they come down to a big mess. There is a problem that needs solving here. Now, there is a boy who is possessed of a demon. But there is more going on there, some of which we know from Luke, something else we know from Mark. We know from Mark that the scribes and the Pharisees are also there. And they're watching. And they're ready to pounce and attack. And we know there's this great crowd. A huge crowd of people. Now, can you imagine the scene as the father brings his son. And he says, I hope that one of you can, can help me, can help my son. Can you imagine them? Well, of course we can. Who do people call when they want demons cast out? They call us. Here, I got this. No, 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 no. Let me do this. You had the last one. No, I'm better than both of you. Come on, let me try. And they are ready to do what they think they can do. But the problem is, is that they can't. Can you imagine that? As the first tries. And the second tries. And the third tries. And now the Pharisees are mocking and laughing. Oh, some kind of teacher you have. You can't even do a basic miracle. And then there's the whole crowd. You know what it's like to do something when it's not going quite right in front of a crowd? You ever been in a big meeting and you have a presentation? All of a sudden then the computer decides not to respond. You're sweating and trying to make it work and everyone's looking and wondering, well, should we go? Can you imagine that? They're trying over and over again. Their self-confidence now is not the same. Performing under pressure isn't easy. But you see, the thing is, Luke tells us why they can't do it. This was their chance to shine. The Father had come up and begged them to help. This was right in their wheelhouse. They had just been doing this, and it was not from a lack of effort. It was that they did not have the ability. How could they not have the ability? You see, they thought they could do this because of what they had done. Not because of the power and authority that Jesus had given them. They figured they could handle this now. They didn't even need Jesus. Don't bother Jesus up on the mountain. We've got this. They failed. 
Now, why were they unable? What was the problem? The problem was is that they had their faith in the wrong object. You see, they thought they were who they were based on themselves. You see, they thought they knew better. They thought, based on their past history and circumstances, that their value was tied up in things they had done. And so they fail miserably. And then something happens that's very unusual in the New Testament. Do you see it in verse 41? Now, we're used to the disciples messing things up, aren't we? You know, Peter is open mouth, insert foot. James and John try to call down thunder. They, they fall asleep at any time when there's a prayer meeting. But we don't normally see this from Jesus. Normally, we see Jesus as the patient, nice, caring, nurturing individual. But here he looks at them and he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation." How long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Now, the word there is very sharp. Jesus says, how long do I have to put up with you? Really? And the key to what Jesus is saying here is that he calls them faithless. He's not talking about the Father. This is the same Father that Mark tells us walked up to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. It's not the Pharisees and the crowd that Jesus is rebuking because He expects them not to believe. But here are His disciples who have followed Him, who have professed faith in Him, who have called Him the Christ. When the chips are down here, they think they need to trust in themselves. They don't need Jesus anymore. You see, they think they can rely on their own methods to do what they need to do. And the problem here is, is that if we think about what it really means to believe in Jesus, it is more than simply acknowledging a set of propositions about who Jesus is. Now, of course, that is essential. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died upon the cross. But we have to do more than that. We must trust Jesus to do what only He can do. That's what it means to rely upon Jesus. Now, this gets very practical and personal. Are you trying today to manage your own sin? To set up fences and guards? To have habits? To find ways that that you can work harder and reduce your own sin. Perhaps you're trying this morning to create the perfect family, that if you just tweak a little here, oil a little there, tighten down a little here, your family will turn out perfect. Perhaps you carry a burden that it's up to you to save your parents, your children, your siblings, your co-workers, your neighbors. You see, the reality is it is not up to you in any of these instances. These are spiritual things that only Jesus can do. 
And when we rely on ourselves and what we have done, we have a wrong view of what greatness is. We think we must do to be great. You see, we need Jesus because we are weak. We need Jesus because He is strong. We need faith in the right object. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in ourselves, not in what we have done. But there's a second way that often we measure greatness. If we're not tempted to look at the catalog of things we've done and add them up, we look outside ourselves and we wonder, what do other people think of us? How do they treat us? There is a great desire that we have for affirmation. I mean, let's face it, everyone wants to be successful, right? No one wakes up and says, Oh, I hope I'm a complete failure today. I hope I get in an accident and I spill coffee over myself and just my day, I hope it goes badly. No, we all want to be at the top of our game. We don't just want to succeed. We want to succeed spectacularly. Nobody wants to be a nobody, do they? We want to be recognized. We want to be appreciated. And the problem is, is that sometimes, like the disciples, rather than learning the lesson that Jesus is teaching them, He has just taught them, you cannot judge greatness by yourself. You must look to Me. Instead, they double down. And they say, well, we have to think about what other people think of us. You see, we want to be useful. We want to know we have purpose. And we want other people to know, too, don't we? It's not just enough for us to do well, is it? Do you have the habit of reminding people of things you've done well? You have a conversation with someone and you just find a way to work it in. You know, when I was in college, my GPA was... You know, at my first job, well, when I was raising my children, right... We just sneak it in there so that everybody knows that we know what we're doing. Look at us. We're at the top of our game. And so the disciples here are having that kind of a discussion. Look at what's going on here in verse 46. Now, they've just come down from the mountain. They've tried to heal this boy of having a demon. They have been unsuccessful and Jesus does it after their spectacular failure. The Pharisees have been laughing at them. The people have been snickering at them. Jesus saves the entire situation and so, of course, what they do is they walk down the road as they say, well, who do you think is the best among us? Oh, I think I am. Oh, really? How many demons you cast out last month? Wait, hold on a second here. Jesus didn't take you up on the mountain. He took me. Uh, Peter, he only took you because he was afraid to let you out of his sight. Really? And you can imagine, I mean, this is an argument. This is not a, a dispassionate discussion. This is almost on the lines of, well, you could imagine. Imagine something that never happens in your home. Like, if two of your children had a discussion like, our two are not, our two are not, right? These kind of heady and intellectual discussions. 
This is what's going on here. Now, here's the interesting thing. What is the context for this discussion, argument about who's the greatest? It's complete and utter failure. They bombed big time. They couldn't do anything. And so they're having this discussion. They could do nothing at all without Jesus. What an incredible embarrassment they went through. They couldn't even stay awake on the mountain of transfiguration. They fell asleep. Here are a group of men trying to decide who are the greatest. When as soon as someone mentions prayer meeting, they're out like a light. You see, because what they're doing is they're seeking their own greatness. They want everyone to acknowledge that they are the greatest. They want affirmation from others. You see, this is not just the problem. This is a a highlighting of the problem. The problem is, is that they want others to know who they are. This is a problem that we share with them, don't we? It's as much about being above others as it is having intrinsic worth, right? It's not just enough that I win. You should lose. And let me remind you how many points I beat you by, right? That makes me feel better. That gives me value. Everyone looks and sees They want something tangible and measurable that everyone around them will acknowledge they are the greatest. It's like a scoreboard for life. As if you could walk down the street and there was a gigantic scoreboard with neon lights that showed you had more points than your neighbor. Well, who's the best parent? Look at the scoreboard. Who's the best worker? Scoreboard, right? This is what they want. They're using the wrong scale entirely. Do you remember what Jesus told them earlier? He said you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily. Jesus has already told them that worth in the kingdom of God is to be humble, is to deny yourself, is to think more of others, is to exalt others, to lift them up. And they've got the scale completely upside down. You know, it's as if someone comes to you and says, I want to, I want to be your investment manager. Okay. Why should I let you manage my portfolio? Well, the last 10 years, I've lost 50% of what was invested with me every single year. And you think, what? But you see, that's what they're doing. They're measuring upside down on a scale of what Jesus has given to them. Jesus never asked them for greatness. He never said they need to be great. All Jesus said is you must have faith. This is not just true for disciples. You may not have failed this week at casting out a demon. But there are things in your life that cause you that kind of pain. Aren't there? It says you walk by your dresser 
when you find a name tag or a business card that reminds you you've lost a job. It's when your child says or does something that reminds you that you blew that parenting lesson. It's when you drive a car that isn't working quite right because you realize you didn't make the right decision. And you see, we can tend to focus upon these things that are our failures. We tend to be tunnel visioned. And Jesus says, that's not what it's all about. What Jesus tells you today is you must stop climbing the spiritual ladder. Not only does it not make you the greatest, it is sinful. Stop it. Stop comparing yourself to others to make yourself feel good. Well, I haven't memorized as many Bible verses as him, but I'm way ahead of her. Stop it. You see, your value, your worth is not bound up in a reputation of what others think about you. The only one's opinion who matters is Jesus's. Stop it. Well, what do we do then? If we must put to death, if we must stop, if we must mortify, if we must take off the sin of valuing ourselves and our worth by things we have done or what other people say about us, how can we properly measure greatness? Jesus tells us. There are at least three things in our passage this morning that help us to understand what it means to be great. The first we see in verse 44. Jesus makes a statement to them. Let these words sink into your ears. Now, you have to understand, this is, this is also very sharp. Jesus is really trying to get their attention. What you need to do is, is metaphorically close your eyes and imagine what your parents would say to you when you must pay attention and be able to repeat back something to them. Right? Listen up. Hey, look at me. No, no, look at me when I'm talking to you. Look at me. Okay. You better be paying attention now, right? That's what Jesus does. The words here, let this sink into your ears. And then he says something that seems jarringly out of place. Now, remember the context. You would think the disciples, okay, now Jesus is going to tell us what we did wrong about the demon casting out. Okay. Give us a tip, Jesus. Tell us. What does he say? The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Wait a minute. Jesus, what about the demon? What about the crowds? What are you talking about? It seems out of place, doesn't it? But it's not. Because you see, this statement is never out of place. What Jesus is saying is, stop looking at yourself, stop looking at your circumstances, stop looking at others for your reputation, and look at the cross of Christ. That's where you find your worth. That's where you are connected. That's where you have value. 
When Jesus is at the center of your life, when you live your life toward the cross, everything falls into place. Now, that doesn't mean everything is perfect. But it means everything falls into its proper perspective. Your family, your job, your money, your relationships, your discipleship, your evangelism. Everything falls into place as you look and travel to the cross of Christ. This is harder than we think, isn't it? The disciples completely missed it. Do you see verse 45? They don't know what's going on. They don't understand. And they're even afraid to ask Him to explain it. This is what the Christian life is all about. Don't take it up because you think it's too simple. It's the hardest thing you will ever do to try and live your life in the perspective of the cross. There's a second thing that Jesus tells us is a measure of true greatness. And He tells us this in verses 47 and 48. They're having their argument. And Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. Now, Jesus, I love the way that he makes statements and does actions that are so appropriate to what's going on. I mean, they're having this childish argument about who is the greatest. And so what does he do? He grabs a child. Now, I want you to put this in a perspective that you can understand. Don't just look at the disciples. I want you to imagine that you are in a discussion let's even call it an argument, with someone in your office about whose division is more important to the company, about whose profits are better. Or perhaps you're discussing who does the best at school, whose grades are higher, who's learning more. And I come up and I say to you, you know what you really need to be thinking about? What? Uh, You see the newborn baby over there? Yeah. You really need to suck your thumb like the baby. What? Anybody can suck their thumb. What's so great about sucking their thumb? Even a baby can do it. Exactly. You see, Jesus is reminding them that greatness is not something that we bring to the table, that we need a skill set for. Greatness is not what others think of us but what Jesus thinks of us. Greatness is not what we accomplish, but what we do in Jesus' name. You see, Jesus is saying, you're asking all of the wrong questions. Stop worrying about who is best. Now, do you notice Jesus' answer here? He does not even say, the one who is like a child is greatest. The one who is humble is greatest. Jesus says, stop making all of these comparisons. There is great and there is not great. There are those who follow me and those who do not. 
There are those who are loved by the Father and those who are not. There are those who are redeemed and those who are not. Stop trying to find the pecking order. Don't worry about the great depth chart. Follow me. Receive me. Receive the one who sent me. There's a third and final thing that Jesus tells us is a way that we can understand what true greatness is. We have to keep focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. We have to stop making comparisons. And we also have to have Jesus' goal in our minds. He tells us this in verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, we might think here Luke is being a bad editor. Where does this question come from? What's John getting at here? Why is he asking? But you see, John is trying still to work the problem. It's as if John says to himself, okay, I get it now. Master, I get it. We should not be fighting about which of us is the best. We should just all be agreed and understand that we're all equal and all better than those people. Right? I get it now. You see what he's done? He's just transferred. You've never done that, have you? We're professionals at that, aren't we? We say to ourselves, well, you know, Presbyterians may not be perfect, but at least we're better than the Baptists. Right? Or we have great magnanimity of heart, and we say, you know, oh, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, we're all, we're good. But, you know, we're so much better than those people over there. You see, Jesus challenges this. He says, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, what Jesus is not doing here is saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you think about God. It doesn't matter what you think about the Bible. Let's all just be warm and fuzzy together and assume everyone is nice and everything is awesome all the time. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you try and think in an exclusionary matter to exclude other people based on what you have done or you think you are doing things wrongly. They may be wrong about something they're teaching. They may be wrong about something they're doing. But the fact that that is true does not make you better than them. It may in that instance make you more correct than them, but it does not make you intrinsically better than them. It does not make you greater. Because you see, that kind of a desire harms the kingdom. We're not focused on the cross. We're not focused on Jesus' goal. We're focused on placing ourselves one rung above other people. 
You see, this is the challenge for us. To be great means to be humble, to be generous, to think the best of others, to think the least of ourselves. When we begin to do this, we will see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. We will see our lives change. And we will see and experience the true greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. His majesty. Just as clearly as that crowd saw the majesty of Jesus when He cast out that demon. This is the way that we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Where He is everything. We are nothing. Where all that we are is bound up in all that He is. Let's pray.